Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Jason Slaughter. Jason, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. Most people, I know a bit more about them as individuals before we get started. And in your case, I know your name because I contacted you through, uh, I don't know if it was it through your YouTube channel. I mean, it's your YouTube channel, not just bikes, right. which I've already today talked to two people about without even trying. <laughs> it's, it does come up in conversation sometimes. Yeah. I mean, once you start watching it, if you live near other people, any of you listeners out there, I was going to say originally, if you live in a city, but it's not just if you live in a city, if you live near people, this is going to change how you view, how you interact with them. And it's, I mean, what was I talking about yesterday? Someone, no, two days ago, someone was giving me a ride. I, I'm rarely in a car and we were driving through some neighborhood and she's like, oh, this is, there's a speed trap here. If you go over 25 miles per hour or whatever it was, you're going to get hit. You're going to get a ticket. And it's, it's clearly designed, it looks like you should drive a lot faster and everyone has to right. put on the brakes to go there. But right. there are all these little driveways that come out into the street. I'm like, strode. Yeah. And, and so I told her about <laughs> it and she's like putting in her phone so she can check it out when she's, uh, check out the videos. Oh, so, okay, you so you, here's what I know about you is that mm -hmm. you, and I think I got this right, but tell me if I, if I get it wrong, that you were, you were raised in, born and raised in Canada. Yep. Uh, traveled to various different cities in the world. Yeah, sampled them and then ended up in uh, the Holland. And now I've spent time in Amsterdam. So I always think of Amsterdam and I'm, I've ridden a bike there and I love it. And over time, you realized that you really liked how they designed cities and how they lived there. And, but it's not just bikes. And even the bikes in the seventies, the pictures of Amsterdam, it was overrun with cars and there was a plan to bring highways in. So it would probably end up something like Houston. Not like the maybe, that maybe not that bad, but uh... <laughs> and through deliberate intent with a strategy and a vision and a plan, maybe not all together, but somehow the Dutch got together to make beautiful cities that are livable. And then I think you probably you probably started tugging at the string, and then the whole sweater unraveled, and you've made this set of videos that reveal what you've shown, what you've discovered. And then I think propelled you to research more and more and more. I don't like when I hear people saying they binge on videos because it, if it's on Game of Thrones, I think that stuff is designed to addict people. Like they make the characters so that like they, they have, everything's a cliffhanger ender to get to the next one. Right. Yours, you want to watch, I certainly want to watch them all. I haven't finished them all yet, but it's not binging. It's not like, it's just really informative and really thought provoking. And, oh, and then finally, um, uh, Raleigh Williams, who's been a guest on this podcast. Oh, great. Yeah. I saw him on your show and I was like, well, there's the connection. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even wait yeah, to contact indeed. him to put me in touch with you. I just contacted you. No, it's good fun. That was good fun. The uh, collab I did with Raleigh. I love his videos. And I yes. really, I did that collab entirely because I wanted him to get more um, views. And I'm, I'm totally not upset that his version of our collab has over a million views and mine has like 400,000. That's fine. <laughs> I'm okay with this, honest. <laughs> well, yeah, he's very funny and he brings he humor to something that he's most so people funny. don't find funny humor in. Yeah, actually, when I, when I spoke to him and um, I forget the name of his producer who's also on the call and within seconds we're talking, I'm like, well, this is why it gets so many views because they're funny. Like he's not, he doesn't try to be funny on the show. He's funny. He's just and a funny guy. Yeah. I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that's what brought me to you, watching the videos, loving the videos, having it change how I view 
the city, my interactions with people, what it means to be a citizen. Uh, and, and the videos are, are fun. They're, they're usually five, 10 minutes, maybe sometimes shorter. Uh, they're getting longer these days. They're creeping up toward 20 minutes, but they, they seem to be settling between about 10 and 20 minutes these days. And that's, I mean, I make them as long as they need to be. Uh, you know, it's not network television. It's not like they need to be 24 and a half minutes, uh, 30 minutes plus ads or something. But um, I try to cover really just one topic at a time. And I try to just say what needs to be said about that one topic. And if that's 10 minutes, then it's 10 minutes. And if it's 20 minutes, then it's 20. I'm thinking of some, re I think there were recent ones about how um, multiple use downtown areas generate so much more revenue for cities. Yeah, and strong same, town stuff right there. Yep. Yeah, I watched the whole strong town series, and I feel like, like like you showed some graphs, which I guess you got from someone else. But it seems like you did a lot of research. I mean, like a lot of research. Maybe it's just because you love it, or I mean, I kind of have to ask. I'm sure you get asked all the time: is how do you pick the topics, and how do you decide how much how down how much down the rabbit hole you're going to go with each one, and then how do you make it? How much time do you spend? Not just here's a bunch of facts and information, but to make it interesting and illustrating mm. it so effectively yeah well i mean i don't have a background in urban planning of any kind i actually used to work in tech um but what i do have is experience just being everywhere i think i've been to uh, 59 countries i think i think my wife's been to 61 so she's beating me but um i've been to 59 countries i've lived in six countries um and what was the most important is that, you know, I'm from Canada, but then we left and we lived in various places like the UK, Taiwan, uh, Belgium. I lived in the US. I've lived in the Netherlands now, of course. And, but the interesting part is we moved back to Canada and that reverse culture shock was just unbelievable. It was, it was, I, I couldn't handle it. I lasted about a year, my wife a little longer, but um, coming from like living in walkable cities and um, being in so many walkable environments and then going back to Canada, which is not as bad as the United States, but it's still very car centric. There's a lot of car dependent places. Um, and I couldn't I couldn't handle it. I'm like, I don't want to live like this. And that began all of the research as to like, first of all, why is that? <laughs> like, what are those differences? Why do I have that reaction? Why do I like the places I like and dislike suburbia? And that's where my own research came in, um, partially out of interest, but also because we had kids and we decided we can't just keep traveling around the world, we have to settle on somewhere, right? So we had to do our research. And, and that's where a lot of it came from. But the channel itself was only supposed to be uh, the reasons why we moved to the Netherlands. Um, because Dutch people would ask us that all the time. Why would you move here? Canada is a wonderful country. Why would you move here? And people in Canada would say, why the Netherlands? Like that tiny little country? Like, why? Why there after all the places you've been? So um, I got sick of explaining that and that's where the channel started from so if you look at the first year of videos it really was the initial goal of why do i think dutch cities are better than cities in other places um and and of course people love to to just come up with the bicycles oh yeah there's the bicycles there but of course it's not just bikes and that's exactly where the the name came from is that there's a lot of good reasons why dutch cities are so great and it's not just bikes so that was it that was the channel. It was just going to be that 10, 12 videos, something like that. But it clearly struck a nerve. Like people were very interested in this. It started with actually Dutch people being really interested in it, which is not something I didn't expect. So in the first year, like 60% of my audience was Dutch, which was, you know, I, I had mistakenly assumed that these people knew all this stuff already because they live here. 
but they didn't. They grow up with this. They have no idea what the history is. They have no idea why things are the way they are. And a lot of people just think it's just, that's the way it's been made sense. It should always be that way. Um, and so then after that first year, when it came to the topics, I thought, okay, well, there's, you know, there's clearly interest in this. Other people like this stuff too. It's not just me, which you never know, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, thought, I didn't think that that many people were interested in it. In, in urban planning and walkable cities and all that kind of thing. And so then after that, I thought, okay, well, there were actually, there was a lot more I learned, not just about the Netherlands, but about urban planning in general over the course of my years of figuring out where, where I wanted to, to move with my family. And, um, and, and that was, you know, the, the strong towns, for example, which for the, any listeners who don't know is a nonprofit organization based in the United States, uh, which, uh, kind of came to a lot of the same conclusions I did, but from a totally different point of view. They they came to it from uh, the financial angle, actually, um, started by a traffic engineer who started questioning, like, we don't seem to have enough money to build all this stuff, but we're just getting loans to build it all. Like, sh surely this can't be right. And then he found out it it is the way it is in his town and his state and his entire country and every city in North America. And he was like, oh, my God, this is this is awful. Um, and and um and so i wanted to tell the message of strong towns and then after that i mean when it comes to topics i have a list uh, that i keep in google docs it's about 300 videos long so mm -hmm. i could be doing this for 10 years easily just on the list that i've got now but things come up all the time and i think because well now that covid is kind of waning um and i am starting to do more travel especially if i go back to north america and see that drastic difference from one place to the other um and the, and the, the topics do come up like just the other day i had a um, meeting in a business park by the airport here in the netherlands and i've never been in such a nice business park in my entire life so suddenly there's a video that's coming out uh, next week about business parks i never thought of doing that but as soon as i see some of the stuff here i'm just blown away by it it's just so different and and it's just fundamentally built better and um and i think the topics kind of just come out of that to be honest <laughs> Something I love about what you're showing is that by pointing out not just bikes, not just in the title, but in, in this all comes from something. And one of the things driving me in my sustainability work is that here's how I put it. I, mean, I think we're addicted to I, I, I increasingly talk about this and what, what, what my upcoming book is about or starts off about is that we're addicted to things that, that come only through pollution. And mm. from that model a lot of what I see is pollution. It's like we're turning, you, you've seen pictures of, of Los Angeles's Skid Row or mm -hmm. Kensington in Philadelphia where I'm from. Yep. If the residents of Skid Row got together, right, so for, for people who haven't seen the pictures or, or been there, it's tents and then there's garbage everywhere. The plants are all dead because they've been covered with garbage and, and human waste and stuff like that. So let's say the, the residents of Skid Row got together and cleaned up all that mess and they replanted all the trees but they did not change their addiction. They didn't change their culture. That's not going to last. It's just going to return. Yeah. And most of the sustainability work these days is, I'm, maybe I'm oversimplifying this a bit, but I think people will get what I mean, that we're basically cleaning up the mess and planting, planting new trees, which is very, very important. We have to do those things. But if we don't change culture, we're, you know, a lot of people say, well, Josh, that doesn't, that's not immediately measurable right here, right now. And that won't get the results that, you know, we have to do something now. I'm not saying not, don't do anything now, but we have to go to the culture. And I think that's what you're talking about here. The, it's the biking isn't, and man, there's one that comes to mind, especially because they're doing construction outside my building right now. 
not the second, but this morning, I was, I was wondering if the jackhammers are still going. Do I keep that on for Jason's episode to have <laughs> the background noise? Because you did one about how quiet uh, cities aren't noisy, cars are noisy. Yeah. And as cities soon aren't as you loud, said cars that, are loud. Like, oh my God. Um, it's, it's actually remarkable. You, you, it's harder, harder to notice in North America, um, because cars are kind of omnipresent, but, uh, here you can get away from the cars or the cars can stop for a while. And then people are just riding on bicycles or their tram goes by or something. And you really do notice the difference. I think, um, to your point though, uh, I think the real issue is that, um, the, the way that, um, certainly North America, but honestly, most of the world is addicted to cheap oil and really just cheap energy in general. Um, if you look at the way American cities are designed, they're incredibly wasteful. I mean, Strong Towns talks about the way they're wasteful financially in that they are built on debt. Um, but even beyond that, they're fundamentally built on cheap oil. And you see this with the oil prices going up. The oil prices have gone up a tiny bit. It's basically like what they were back in, what is it, 2014 or something like that. And people are freaking out. Um, and yeah, because their entire society is built on cheap oil. Um, and the price of gasoline in the United States is still less than the normal price of gasoline in every European country. So um, when you have your entire world built around cheap oil, you're going to be in a lot of trouble when oil isn't cheap anymore because there's really no other energy source with an energy density like oil. Um, and, and it really is like, that's, it, you look at the distances that people drive just to, to no, I'm not even talking about work. Cause I think people talk about commutes too much, but even just to visit friends and to buy groceries and everything else, you just burn through so much oil doing that in any, any American city. And let's compare with a Dutch city. I think to do the, I think most people probably don't have to get into cars very much if they live downtown. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I mean, actually a lot of people in the Netherlands own, own cars uh, because the Netherlands is a wealthy country and, um, and, uh, and cars are a luxury. I mean, it's not like people stopped buying watches when phones had clocks on them. Right. So (laughs) it's still a thing that people buy, but what you'll notice is that um, people don't use their cars as much. And that really comes down to the design of the city. And, you know, and people who don't know, one of the most frustrating things to me about talking about urban planning is everybody thinks they're an expert and everybody sees something and then immediately jumps to like, oh, well, that's because it, it's a small country or it's flat or the, the they don't have too much snow or whatever. Somebody's immediately got the reason why this is the case. And all of those reasons are wrong. Um, the, the reason Dutch cities are the way they are is because of purposeful policy that's been put in place and, and not, not for very long. I mean, as you hinted at, you can easily look up pictures online of Amsterdam in the 1970s and it's full of cars. Um, other than the architecture, you would be hard pressed to tell the difference between an American, British, uh, Dutch city, um, in the 1970s. Um, and, and it came about from purposeful policy and that was to encourage, um, safer streets and to encourage walkable cities, uh, putting destinations near to where people live. Uh, and, and that's really it fundamentally. I mean, there's, there's more to it than that, but, but fundamentally, um, most, most cities outside of the, the suburban, uh, suburbia style, the American car dependent suburb, like even in, in, in Asia and many other parts of the world, um, the normal thing to do, and it was normal in the United States until about 1940, was to 
build things close together, um, to build shops near people's houses, even within the neighborhood, so that, you know, if you needed something, you would just go to it, you would just walk to it. And why wouldn't you? It's right there. Um, but it's it's the American concept that has separated these things, that, that has that um, that idea of residential is over here and commercial is over there and industrial is, is in another spot altogether. And, a, and they may even have a medical area where all the doctors are. And, um, and that fundamentally has changed the way that, that people move and, and the way that, uh, yeah, that the mobility happens in it and it affects people's lives. And it really does come down to that. That's the, the primary difference. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much more, but I mean, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, there's so much more. Is well, I, I encourage everyone to go watch these videos because you go into depth of into, like what he said there were may have sounded like generalities, and in general they, I, I would agree with those things. But the videos go into depth and and passion. And let me ask some personal questions about you're doing it. Is yeah. So you started doing it expecting to do maybe 10, 20 videos, 10, 15 videos, and and it didn't sound like you wanted to make it a big project. Were you, no, you... I still don't want to make it a big project. It just became a big project. <laughs> when you did, you have a goal of just expressing yourself or just posting some curiosity. It sounds like you didn't expect it to catch on. Yeah. So the the um, okay. So the the very first line of my first video uh, summarizes the target audience that I had for it. Um, it was mostly Canadians and Americans, for what it's worth. Like I never thought any Dutch person would care because they're here. They see this. Why would they care? Um, but I said the very first line of my first video was something along the lines of, uh, this is the video I wish I could have seen 20 years ago because it would have saved me a lot of time figuring out where I wanted to live, which is here in the Netherlands. And that really was it. It was that I had spent all this time researching and traveling and experiencing things. And I realized that the, the suburbia experience car dependency that I had grown up with, that's all I had ever known for, you know, the first half of my life, um, that uh, I hated it, I knew that, but it, I, it's just fundamentally wrong. And I thought there must be people um, who, who are feeling the same way. So I often talk about my target audience as me 20 years ago. So it's somebody in their 20s who has grown up in car dependency. Maybe they've gone to college or university and experienced walkability for the first time in their lives. And they knew they liked that. They may know that they like downtown and they don't like the suburbs, but they don't know why. And so that's who I'm targeting. I'm targeting that person who has a feeling that there's something wrong with suburbia, but they don't know what it is. And they need that, that information, that vocabulary that I've learned uh, to crystallize that in their heads. And that's why when um, you, know, you, you say people get hooked on the videos, and they do, and the reason for that is because they have that feeling. They know there's something wrong. They know that like this world built on cheap oil is wrong. They just don't know why. And when it clicks, then you can't unsee it. Um, my, my fans call it being orange pilled by, by the Netherlands, the orange, but, yeah. but, uh, but, and then, and that's exactly it. And that's who I'm targeting. Um, and specifically who I'm not targeting is the dyed in the wool suburbanite. The people who think, Oh, this is fine. No, I love it. I, I drive in my car and I sit in traffic all the time. And, it, and, and I go to this massive grocery store that's uh, six miles away from my house and I'm fine with all this. Uh, boy, that I'd hate to live in one of those stinky, dirty cities. I honestly don't care about those people. Um, maybe somebody else can reach them, but I'm here to reach those people who have that nagging feeling in their mind. And I think 
I think what I would say is the difference with my videos and something else. Like there are other urban planning channels out there. There's lots of them. They're great. Um, yeah, for example, people should be watching City Beautiful, who is an actual urban planner as opposed to me. And uh, Bicycle Dutch, who is a Dutch guy who has been making videos about cycling in the Netherlands for literally over a decade. Um, but I think the difference in my videos is that they really do um, entirely revolve around the experience because you can come up with the stats and the numbers and, you know, you can point at Copenhagen and say, we should do that all you want. But, you know, people aren't really going to get it um, because I, I actually... Um, Th those numbers are all great and they are correct and that is fantastic but i feel like even if they were wrong i would still want to live here because as far as i'm concerned this is a better quality of life for me and my family and so when i talk about living in a walkable urban environment i'm not talking about it because it's better for the environment it is or this is better for city finances it is or any of these other reasons i'm doing it because it's just fundamentally a better way to live and doesn't mean it's for everyone but I guarantee you that there are millions of people out there who would be happier in this kind of environment and don't even know it's an option. You said a lot there. What, the first thing that came to mind <laughs> was that I, I, you know, I'm a, I work in leadership and I do a lot of leadership mm -hmm. coaching and a lot of leaders describe leadership as pointing out what everyone sees, but no one sees what's out there, but no one sees. And when you talked about, yeah, well, you're showing stuff. I'm like, yeah. I mean, some of it I already knew, but most yeah. of it is new. Like, Well, honestly, some of it would require travel, um, uh, to be honest. Uh, if, if, I think the, the best way to experience would be to see it for yourself, but most people can't do that. I mean, I'm incredibly privileged to be able to have traveled as much as I have. Um, but the next best thing is to show it visually and, you know, explicitly point out what it's like, what that experience is like being there. And that's what I try to bring to people who don't have the privilege to be able to travel around the world. You're also making me think about, I mean, I, I grew up in Philadelphia and moved to New York city because my dad took me here when I was 10 years old. And that was like, a, my two sisters and I each on our 10th birthdays, he brought us here and I loved it. And I live in Greenwich village and I love Jane Jacobs, death and life of, of great American death and life of great American cities. And mm -hmm. I loved reading the power book. book and learning about the New York, uh, Robert Moses. And, you know, when, when I learned that she ended up in Toronto, yeah. That was, that's interesting. How did that happen? And that was my first thought of like, what else, what, what else, where else besides Greenwich Village? And I, I love it here, but all man, I mean, a few things have changed. Certainly since the pandemic, it's accelerated, but long before that, the amount of garbage on the streets here is insane. Yep. And the, the heroin, the crack, the fentanyl is very nearby. It's in Washington Square Park regular readers of my blog hear me about that and that's most people look to the police why aren't they getting getting rid of that but there are causes it's a it's a system in which is producing these things and mm -hmm. i've long <clears throat> i've long chosen to choose new york now people often ask me josh you're into sustainability why don't you live in a place that's more nature and I say, because I'm working on leadership and I want to influence people. And this is where the people are who are making the decisions that are affecting the destruction of uh, the, the lowering of Earth's ability to sustain life. Right. Now you moved to a different place and it made you more effective, not less effective. Not that your goal was to affect city planning. And I'm, do you know David Allen by any chance? Or the book? Uh, I don't know. Sorry. 
Okay. He also moved to, I believe, Amsterdam. And uh, I don't think that's secret information. So he and I've, he's been on the podcast and I've met him in, and, uh, um, in person. And so he's there, you're there, you're being more effective. And I'm thinking, and some of the best times in my life. So I got a PhD in physics and about a year before nice. my thesis, I had to give this big presentation in Utrecht, which was like, basically if it went well, that would be what I wrote the experimental part of my thesis on. So it went well. So I had a, a, time, a, night, a couple nights staying with a friend of mine in Amsterdam after having like given this huge six month to prepare presentation of like all my work leading up to then. So I had a really good time in Amsterdam <laughs> and I have very good memories of the place. And it's, I've often said it's one of the places where I'd, I haven't been to as many places as you have, but I've lived in a couple of cities and seen a lot of places and it's topped up there. And now I'm thinking, hmm, maybe. <laughs> and Amsterdam's not the best city in the Netherlands, I can tell you that. Um, I personally think that Utrecht is probably a better city than, mm -hmm. than Amsterdam and probably has uh, is going to be better in the near future. Uh, both cities are improving quite substantially, but I think Utrecht is, uh, is improving a little faster. But, but there are lots of great cities here. And I think that's also important to note is that it's not just about Amsterdam by any stretch of the imagination. It's about the Netherlands in general. One of the things you mentioned that um, the problems that New York City has, especially the garbage, that underground garbage containers. Oh, yeah, my saw, first yeah. video to hit a million views, I think it's got two or three million now. Um, I, <laughs> I mean, that should be done everywhere. That should be done in New York City yesterday. Um, actually, I, it, it, it's interesting. I do have a problem getting through to some Americans. Um, again, I'm not targeting the dyed in the wool suburbanite, but that doesn't mean they don't watch my videos and complain about them. But I have a problem communicating um, why these cities are better to Americans in particular, because I don't actually believe that there's any really, truly great cities in the United States um, for a variety of reasons. And I don't I'm not just saying that flippantly, like insultingly you know, like Duncan on America, um, like American cities have a lot of problems. And um, there are nice areas. Uh, almost every American city has some nice areas. And certainly there are some um, beautiful places in places like, especially on the East Coast, in Philadelphia, uh, in in Boston, and, and New York as well. San Francisco is nice. Portland has nice things. Seattle. But, but in general, American cities do have a lot of problems, like the garbage on the street of Manhattan. And so I think one of the issues that I have is that uh, many Americans uh, basically have never really lived anywhere except car-dependent suburbia. It's all they know. Mm -hmm. um, uh, having a car, not having a car is like a, like a death sentence in car-dependent suburbia. That's what car dependence is. So they can't imagine it being taken away from them. And their only experience with cities, if they've even been to a city at all, um, <laughs> It may only be from movies, or it would be going to something like Manhattan and seeing how it's so busy and so loud and there's garbage on the street. And that's what, so that in their mind, they have their suburb with their leafy trees and they have that big, dirty concrete jungle. And that's their only knowledge of cities. And so it's very hard to communicate to them that there are things that aren't those two things. And um, it's, it is quite difficult for me to communicate to Americans that you can build cities that are better built cities, like cities can be actually really great and wonderful places to be. Uh, and I think, again, that's one of the things I focus on on the videos is that it's not just about 
the cities and the stats and the bicycle lanes and everything else. It's really about what that experience is like to live in a great walkable city. Man, you're both bringing a tear to my eye and inspire, inspiration to my heart. And insulting every American that's listening. <laughs> I hope inspiring them. I mean, it's, yeah, I talk to, you know, I've, I, I try, you know, my podcast is not a political podcast. And a lot of people think of the environment as something on the political left, but I get a lot that's of people. That's really unfortunate. Well, I, I believe I'm breaking that because I've had a lot of uh, Trump supporters and very staunch Republican uh, politicians on. And I've worked military, worked with the evangelicals. And when I do this, this, this Spodic method, the AIM method with them, it resonates because they care about the environment. They mm -hmm. just don't want it thrust down their throat. This, I'm not going to get into that. But a lot of them, a, a view that's very common, and it's kind of what you just said, but slightly different, is that the suburbs is where they're used to seeing clean, I mean, they see green lawns and they see not a lot of litter. And yeah. inside the city, they're like, we don't want that at where we are. And yeah. It, it hasn't really occurred to me that if that's the way you view things, then they can watch all the videos you make of, of Dutch cities. And still, as soon as they see the buildings close to each other, they're seeing homeless, they're seeing uh, garbage in the streets, they're seeing drugs. Well, they're going to, I mean, I get this all the time that people say, oh, you're just cherry picking. You just went down the nice street. I'm sure there's like a bag of garbage and a homeless person one block over. And no, there isn't. Like this... <laughs> Um, but, you, you know, also with respect to the politics, uh, this is also where Strong Towns is interesting to me because Strong Towns was started by um, lifelong card-carrying Republican fiscal conservatives. Like, and they came to the same conclusions as I did, that actual, like, mixed-use, walkable cities are better for all the reasons that they define better, which are different reasons than I define better. But we came to exactly the same conclusion. And... We uh, we've worked together on on lots of different projects, and and my channel has brought a whole lot of people to Strong Towns, which is fantastic because I think they're just a wonderful organization. But um, despite the fact that their politics and even their methods are completely different than mine, um, we could a hundred percent agree. I mean, maybe not a hundred, but like ninety five percent agree on what we should be doing about cities. And so I think that's at least something positive. It sounds like me when I'm talking, it's slightly different, but when I'm talking to food people, because I have had a couple really big authors uh, about food and they come to it through nutrition. Right. My whole, my start in sustainability, my start of acting was in avoiding packaged food. And we've come to almost the exact same place of right. very similar diet. And I'm just, I just want to get the most delicious food that doesn't have, that's not polluting. And it turns out that that's also the most nutritious and also saves the most money. Although everyone, everyone thinks that it's more expensive. Yeah. I mean, if you buy it out of season, it's expensive. But if you buy it in season and you know the right. farmers, then it's, it's like right now I got the spinach from my CSA. All the stuff in the stores, even the stuff that they have all these um, microgreens and they have all these vertical farms that are supposed to be like better for the environment, which I don't see at all. And there's all these tiny little leaves. And I got these giant leaves. They're like brontosaurus looking things. <laughs> and yeah, we, we used to get a farm box in, in Toronto that would have just in-season vegetables and fruits. And it was tricky to, to cook sometimes because you just get this box and it's full of a lot of stuff that like is that. in season at the time. It's, it's great, but it requires a little bit of creativity to yeah. think about, okay, now what am I going to do with this 
giant pile of kale. But um, <laughs> but uh, but it was really good. And it does remind you that, like, yes, things have seasons. And this is, again, we are very much as a society, not just as Americans, we are um, addicted to cheap oil. That's the only reason that we can get fruits and vegetables at any time of the year, anytime we want. It's entirely because <laughs> we're addicted to cheap oil. And all of that stuff goes away when energy becomes more expensive. Whatever that energy is, it doesn't matter what it is. When energy becomes more expensive, all of that stuff goes away or at least has to change. Well, if you're for it, let's talk sustainability then. If you're for it. Yeah, fine. So is, it, is the environment something that you act on? Is it something that you think about and care about enough to act? Uh, I would say that I act on it, although I don't think that I'm like incredibly serious about it. But, uh, but certainly my wife and I... Um, do have a concern about that. Like the kind of thing, like I mentioned in the video with Rolly, that we pay a little bit extra to make sure that all of our electricity is, um, comes from uh, renewable resources, um, as much as that is possible on a shared grid. So yes, and I mean, we don't own a car, although I do wonder, do we not own a car because of the environment or because I just find owning a car to be a pain in the ass because it's expensive and it's a giant liability and something goes wrong and it's my job to fix it. And so sometimes I wonder if, if I really do care about the environment or I've just decided that um, this is the way I want to live and it happens to have been, be much more sustainable. I mean, yeah. Well, spoiler alert, I think that my living more sustainably has led to me to talk about living sustainably the way you talk about living in a non-car dependent city. Right. And that just... <clears throat> You can list all the mag all the different criteria, but ultimately it's just better by all of those standards. And I really thought it was the opposite. But let's start where you are. Mm -hmm. uh, when what does the environment? When you think about the environment, what do you think about? I don't mean like um, a lot of people are like they talk about what they read in the news. But I mean, growing up, did you have an experience of nature when you're not burning fossil fuels and doing things that? You know, when I'm not living in my suburb, a suburban uh, cheap oil environment that I had growing up. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I ask, think of a time that you were doing something that did not require fossil fuels. I mean, yeah. maybe you were wearing clothes, so it would, but I mean, you weren't <laughs> actually driving while you were there. Like, yeah. Can you think of times Well, I mean, like if that? I think about it, like um, when I was a kid, uh, we lived in a subdivision that was not too old. It wasn't that new either. I mean, we weren't the first people in there. But there was still a, a big wooded area nearby with a creek and a lake, a uh, small lake, pond, let's say. And um, and I used to routinely go out there when I was about 11 or 12 years old with my next door neighbor. And we would just go out into that wooded area and just have a, a heck of a lot of fun. We built a treehouse. We would go like hunt for tadpoles or, or dig stuff up, do kid stuff. It was really nice. Um, that That place has been bulldozed to build more um single family homes um and that is gone and that is something that i think about uh, quite often because uh that was i would say an important part of my childhood growing up was that wooded area being near my house and um and of course it's gone now and the kids that grow up there now will not have that experience and this is one of those things that um so uh, you know there was a uh, I have not read the article, but I've seen it come across my Twitter feed because when something relevant comes across 
the internet, I get it sent it about 300 times. And um, there is an article that's something along the lines of 77% of, um, of Americans believe that it's better for the environment if houses are farther apart from one another. Um, and the thing is, that um, wooded area was bulldozed to build more single-family homes. Um, and they consume an, an insane amount of space, an absolutely insane amount of space. And one of the things with here in Amsterdam is that um, if you look at uh, if you look at say like statistics, uh, Amsterdam has a lot of trees for a European city. But if you look at statistics of like how many trees we have compared to some car dependent suburb, it may be it's not in all cases, but it may be that Amsterdam comes out having less trees and green space than some suburb, and people will sometimes. Um, throw these stats at me. I, I often get people who just throw s- these stats that they've clearly just Googled. I call them uh, um, the Wikipedia contrarian. They don't actually know what they're talking about, but they've just gone and looked up some numbers and said, well, look at this numbers. You're clearly wrong. And I think one of the things that people um, miss is that here in Amsterdam, people do live closer together and there is a higher density. It's a, it's a very comfortable density and it never feels like too busy like it might in an American city with lots of high rises. But one of the things is that I can get out to nature very, very quickly, like within a 15 minute bike ride. And, um, and that's remarkable because in the places I've lived in the U S and Canada, I would have to drive in traffic, potentially even for hours before getting to outside of the city, if you will. And so when you look at these stats and say, oh, you know, Amsterdam doesn't have that many trees, that's because Amsterdam physically, the borders of it are small. But that means that you can get out of it very quickly. And there are big gaps between the cities here because they tend to be relatively, um, instead of sprawling together and merging into one giant sprawling area, like the way something like a Los Angeles has done or the San Francisco Bay Area, um, there are these pockets of towns. This is okay, and, and this is what used to exist in, in North America too until about 100 years ago, 70 years ago. Um, and it has nothing to do with how big the country is or anything like that. It just has to do with how land is used. And so, my point on all this, because there is a point, believe it or not, I'm not just rambling. If, um, if things had been built closer together and you had had that gentle density in my hometown, um, you very easily could have housed all of those people and then some and still kept that wooded area that I played in when I was a kid, easily. And it would have been accessible by bike or by foot to literally thousands of children. Um, but it's not. It's, it's gone because we, we simply don't use land wisely. And I think it's really lost on people just how much of the country we're paving over to live this way. And ultimately, it is not a better way to live. We are destroying things in the process. And we're all now stuck in this massive sprawling area that requires a car to go anywhere. Uh, And of course, children can't drive. So yeah, that's a long winded way of saying that's kind of what popped into my mind just now. It does make me sad that we um, that we build this way and that people just can't seem to get it. One of my TEDx talks, I, talk, I start off by talking about how I grew up by the best sledding hill in the world. And the Wissick Avenue between my house and the sledding hill got 
made safer for cars and the cars go faster. And right. so someone it's not as accessible as before. Yeah. Last time I was there uh, with my dad, you know, we just picked up litter because it was there. It wasn't there before. Yeah. What you said rings true a lot. I, I my post yesterday was my, my, I wrote a blog post every day and Yesterday's post led to today's post, which I haven't written yet. I just have the notes for it, but it's very relevant. Yesterday I wrote, when was the last time you ate a meal or ate food without any packaging? Because I see people walking down the street and everything's packaged. And mm -hmm. if I'm in a supermarket, everything has stickers on it. And even when they don't, people put it in, in plastic bags, which are unnecessary. And, and so I, I wondered, can people conceive of going on a vacation without burning fossil fuels? I mean, people used to walk across this country. Yeah. Well, and the entire United States was built on trains, to be honest. They weren't electric at the time, but they could be now. I was actually reading that before cities, people traveled much more. I mean, you know, this is going back thousands of years, thousands of years. Yeah, You, you still see it in northern Canada, where like we were up in the uh, Yukon, and, uh, and the people there will easily walk an hour to go visit their friend. Uh, it's just a normal part of, of culture up there. Let me go back to what you were saying about uh, being 11 years old and going out in the woods with your friend. Do you remember the emotions, what, what it felt like? What was the experience? Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. Um, it's that uh, independence that kids have, right? Because as far as you're concerned, that is like the biggest, greatest thing in the world. Um, and, 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 and that feeling of independence is, I think, one of the most important things for children around that age. Can you go on? Independence from adults, independence. And what's so great about independence? Is it? Uh, is I it think kids crave independence. Um, once they get to be about eight years old, um, well, even, look, even two-year-olds want to, you know, they, they want to get dressed by themselves. They don't want their parents to do it for them. It's built into kids to want to be independent, to do things on their own, to become their own person. Uh, I think that's fundamental. Uh, not that I have a psychology degree or anything, but... I, I, I would certainly argue that that is the case. And as kids get older, that, in, that need for independence grows. It's not, you know, getting dressed by yourself and brushing your teeth yourself is not enough. They want to be able to go out on their own. They don't want to be told where, uh, where to go and what to do, have to be taken everywhere by their parents. And that, that, um, that actually, uh, I mean, I could talk about that uh, for ages because I think the number one reason why I'm happy we moved to the Netherlands is because of the independence that children have here. Because in a car dependent place, as I said, children can't drive and children need to be driven everywhere by their parents. That's what we have the concept in North America of the soccer mom, right? We think that's normal. That like kids as old as 15 or 16 are being driven to soccer practice by their parents. That's insane. That never happens here. Because once kids are about 10, uh, they can ride a bike once they're about five or six, they can ride a bike on their own with their parents. And then once they're about 10 or 11, they can ride a bike and go places on their own because the city is safe and because things are within a reasonable distance. And so our 11-year-old goes to school on his own, comes home on his own. Sometimes after school, he goes out with his friends. Uh, they'll, well, you know, bike around the city. They'll go to the grocery store and buy some candy or something. And um, that's not possible in car-dependent suburbia. It, may have been possible in the past in older suburbs that were not quite as car dependent as modern suburbs that we build today. But kids growing up in car dependent suburbia, 
they may not even have a sidewalk. Um, maybe they do. They could possibly walk to a friend's house. They probably can't walk to a shop. They probably can't walk to school. It's too dangerous for them to bike. And so they end up being trapped. And, and this is this is one of these things that angers me so much because I get these people saying, oh, you know, well, no, no, you need a car when you have kids and you need a yard when you have kids. And I'm like, you know, as soon as the kid is about six or seven, they don't want to hang out in their backyard. They want to go out and do things and see things. And and they get trapped in that suburbia. And then everybody complains why the kid's staying inside and playing video games all day. Well, because they can't go out. I can't believe how rich and how what you're saying tugs on so many different things. When I in the summer between my high school and college, my friend and I, we were 16 and we rode our bikes from Philadelphia to Maine and back. So about 1500 miles. And we always joke, you know, our parents would be arrested today if we did that. Oh, they literally would. Yeah. Yeah. And no, they literally would. That's not even a joke. They would. They would. They would certainly be visited by police and probably by child protection services. And the best parts, I, I mean, it's a long time ago now, it was 1988, but I remember the really hard part was suburbia. Yeah. Sometimes we, there's one time when we were in a city, we stayed at like a shelter for runaways that just put us up for the night because we were passing through. That was Poughkeepsie, if I remember right. But when you're in, a, in a, a rural area or a farm area, you know, farmers like, yeah, go out in the pitch a tent, see in the morning. Yep. But the suburbs was like really complicated. We get stuck. And then also we had these, you know, this was before digital maps. So we had to have these paper maps. We couldn't really deviate because from the map that had been, there's some company, Bike Centennial, that made up these maps. But every mm -hmm. now and then there'd be a highway that would go directly where we wanted to go. Right. And once or twice, we'd go on the, on the shoulder of the highway, which was scary, to say yeah. the least. And the number of highways, I'm sure, is significantly greater now. And the number of little roads that we took can be much smaller and yet what is life for why are we going from one place to another if everyone says it's the journey not the destination and then when you talk to them about well how about biking somewhere and they're like no no no, not <laughs> not like that yeah and if yeah, i, if I talk know, to the, them the truth is since since we were kids um there are a lot more roads and strodes uh, speed limits are higher um uh the average speeds the drivers go whether the speed limit is higher is also higher um, the tr cars have become, you know, SUVs. Um, they're much more dangerous to pedestrians. It's harder to see pedestrians and pedestrians are more likely to be killed when they're hit. Cyclists too. Um, the roads are significantly more dangerous for people outside of a car today than they were, um, in the seventies, eighties, even nineties. And, um, and that has come with it some massive problems for society in general, but certainly it has robbed children of their independence. Um, the thing is, road fatalities, well, actually, until recently, now they are going up, especially because of SUVs. But um, road fatalities have decreased fairly substantially in the US and Canada since the 1970s. But the solution to that was to put everybody in a car, right? So you start taking people off the road, you start taking pedestrians off the road, you start putting them in cars. Um, and, and fewer people are dying because you're protected inside of a car. Now, there's still a hell of a lot of issues when you get high-speed, heavy vehicles going around. But the issue is that even if the roads had become safer for people within cars, they have become significantly less safe for people outside of cars. 
for pedestrians and for cyclists and for children and for seniors and for anybody else who can't drive. Um, I mean, one of the one of the things I hear about all the time here in the Netherlands is people who are disabled and can't drive. They love the independence that the Netherlands provides them because they can take their wheelchair, their mo mobility scooter, their tricycle, their hand cycle, and they have their own independent mobility. It's a similar situation that you have with the children. Um, and yet, when you bring up these topics in, in, in the North America, people are always like, you can't get you're, rid of cars. What about, you're about to make people? me cry. You're about to make me cry because <laughs> and trying to make more pedestrian areas down here. And they're constantly saying old people yeah. and handicapped yeah. need cars. And yet I see disabled people out on the streets here literally every single day. Yeah. And the difference is, um, first of all, I don't see that many disabled people. Uh, when I'm back in North America, I do see them uh, sometimes on a, you know, on a wheelchair at a Walmart or something like that. But the, the truth is, I don't think they get out as much as they do here. Yeah. Um, but the other difference is that when you see disabled people in North America, they're usually with somebody who is taking them around. Whereas here, I see disabled people on their own. Uh, I see like 80 year old women riding a bicycle and they have a, th there's actually a thing they sell here, which is a cane attachment for a bicycle. So you can attach your cane to the side of the bicycle so that when you park your bike, then you can use your cane to get to the store um, because I, it's unbelievable how many people can't drive, but can ride a bicycle or a tricycle. It's, yeah. it's much, much more than people think. But of course you couldn't do that in North America because it's too dangerous to ride a bike. Even for 20 something fit men, it's too dangerous. So never mind for some 80 year old with a bad hip. Um, but yeah, this kind of environment provides better mobility for basically everyone. And there are still some people who are disabled and need a car. And for that, I mean, there are disabled parking places. And even where cars have been limited here, you can get a disabled permit to go through, you know, the moving bollards to go in if, if you have that need. But people drastically overestimate how big that need is. Um, because I mean, like I said, every single day I see people on mobility scooters and hand cycles and tricycles and other mobility devices that aren't cars. And it's very likely that these people can't drive because of their disability, um, but they can ride a bicycle or tricycle or mobility scooter. Do I hear right that that independence that you talked about as a child is infused? Does it infuse all of what you do? I mean, is it somewhere in your heart? Maybe not for every video, but for. Because I, I mean, I'm, I dream of New York City today being like Amsterdam of the '70s. I mean, okay, getting on the path that mm -hmm. Amsterdam did at that point. You know, Robert Moses certainly took us a long way in that whole philosophy, but maybe we can get <laughs> back. And I feel like you're trying to help restore that. I mean, is is that independence a big part of it? Is it? I mean, there must be other motivations as well, but is that one there? Well, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of motivations, but I, I do have to say that when it comes to the channel, uh, it's probably, it's mostly selfish motivations, right? It was all the things that just led me to want to have a better life for me and my kids and kind of everything else was way, 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 way after that. Um, but I mean, the, certainly the independence for children is, is um, I think one of the most important aspects of our, of our life here. And I just, <laughs> again, I just think back to our 11 year old and just how he just goes out. And it's great. And it's fantastic. And he couldn't have that in North America for a variety of reasons, many of the city design reasons, but there's also other systemic issues that have 
that have happened in its side. It also reminds me of uh, another big interest of mine is, is culture. When, when I learned about the San Bushmen in Southern Africa or the Hadza in Tanzania that live as our ancestors did, no one really knows exactly, but like 50,000. Anyway, the kids there at five years old, they get a bow and arrow and they're hunting small <laughs> game. And by 10, yeah, they're right? bringing in big game. And, and for that matter, there's this one segment in this movie, The Hadza, The Last of the First. And these two kids have gone to the school. So the school is like some missionaries set it up or something like that. And the kids didn't want to go there because for lots of reasons. And the interviewer is asking them, how'd you get home? Because it's a two-day walk. And they say, well, we stayed with one group on the way and we stopped and, and we found some food. And, and then he goes, because we're Hadza. <laughs> There you go. Like, we're not helpless like you. <laughs> and he's what, 10 years old. And he yeah. can, two, two kids can just walk two days with no food. I doubt they had shoes. And they just do it. Anyway. Yeah. So, and, I, and I think like we're, we're not trying to imply that we need to go back to a world where everybody has to walk two hours to get places. But at the same time, we've lost a lot by designing places entirely built for cars. Um, and you know, my, for example, my son cycles everywhere he wants to go, but he also loves taking the tram too. Sometimes he just takes the tram because it's fun and he prefers it. And so then he's learned how to read the, the public transit maps and, and deal with delays and deal or, or detours rather. Uh, and he just knows how to do that. And, um, that's just part of growing up, right? You learn those things. And, um, like one of the things they have here in Europe is that uh, when a European citizen turns 12, uh, 12, 18, they can get a um, uh, a free Eurorail pass that, that gives them free train travel within all of Europe. And a lot of 18-year-olds then go and explore Europe, which helps with, you know, EU integration. You make friends in other countries and all that kind of thing. But again, that's that independence for children. I don't know if you could just take a child who'd grown up in suburbia and then had their license for a couple of years and finally got a little bit of freedom. If you could just drop them into the train network of Europe and they'd figure out what to do. I bet they'd be extremely confused and probably have a panic meltdown. But by the time my kids get to 18, they'll be pros at that. That'll be, they'll be better than me. Going back to how you felt growing up in the, in the woods outdoors. I invite you at your option. You're doing a lot of things to act on these things already. <laughs> but I invite you to think of something new that you're not already doing to manifest <laughs> those things to, you know, not to fix the world. Yeah, I'm, I'm not suggesting I'm not saying what's the most important thing you can do for the environment by any stretch. Something that you and if you're up for it, usually people haven't thought of it. Mm -hmm. But something that you're doing with three constraints that it's new, that you're not already doing that you do it yourself. I mean, you can do it with others, but at least you have to be involved. So it's no like sending your kids outside. You, you have to go with them. <laughs> and um, uh, you don't have to measure any results, but it just it has to be non-zero change to the world that you say, I've improved the world in some way. And it, it doesn't have to be a lifestyle change. It can be just something you do once or twice to try out. But I think that, you know, it's sort of giving people for most people on the podcast, it's like an environmental experience. It's kind of like seeing a city that's not either a dirty downtown or a suburb. You're already, you've already done a lot, but 
Yeah, I don't have a good answer to that question at all because I <laughs> I feel like I have so little time as it is. I can't even imagine doing anything else. Ah, uh, well, now but, that's um, something where that's one of the big things here is that most people that do have this association with, oh, well, I have to do something different than what no, I'm no. doing now. Yeah. You picked up yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, you know, it's funny um, because uh, <laughs> because I've started this YouTube channel and it has been successful, but it's really not just a YouTube channel. It's literally turned into a movement, which is uh, kind of frightening to say the least. Uh, but I mean, it's good to see. But that's kind of what's consuming my time now is mm-hmm. is dealing with um, what that means to have a movement of people who are looking to change things. You know, one of the I mean, maybe this will answer your question, but probably not. One of the things that has uh, troubled me is that uh, I've made this YouTube channel and I've orange-pilled a lot of people. But um, the thing that you have to keep in mind is that uh, my solution, right? So I'm bringing up a lot of problems here, and I'm pointing to the Netherlands as, as a solution to a lot of these problems. But my ultimate solution to North American cities being terrible was to leave. And, um, and that's a bit of a concern because now I've, I've shown this information to literally millions of people. And I hear from people multiple times per day that now they're like, I can't look at the world the same way again. And I don't know what to do about it. And I don't have a good answer for them because I was in advocacy in North America and I got incredibly frustrated. I just saw that ultimately change was extremely slow and it wasn't always in the positive direction. And um, I realized that nothing substantial was going to change in my lifetime. And, um, and so that's why we decided to leave. And I think my issue with this fundamentally is that um, that's an incredibly privileged position to be in. Not everyone can just pack up and move to another country that's better. And so I've been giving a lot of thought to um, what I can do to provide some help and some um, guidance and help some other advocacy organizations who have, let's say, uh, a little more faith than I do in in what could happen in North America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is part of the reason why I send people to strong towns. But I think if there's anything that I could do, it would be to take the influence that I have and the exposure that I have from this channel and funnel it better into ways to actually improve North America so that there is a answer to the question, what can I do about my city, rather than just leave what I'm hearing, I'm hearing you struggling with what to do and how to do something here in North America from there. And I don't have an answer to that, but I think- <laughs> No, I don't, I know nobody does. Well, but I think of a process that, I think this will send you on a process that is unexpected, but effective. That okay. if you think about how am I going to change a whole system you generally find lots of, you generally will knock everything out because nothing changes everything by, you know, by yourself overnight. On the flip side, if you do something consistent with the values that are driving that, solutions will arise that you never would have come up with otherwise. Now you are doing things. You, 
at first glance, you say, I don't have time for other things, but you don't have it. I think you might feel like you don't have time to start a whole thing that's going to change North America. But if you do something that, if you live by that value, even where it's easier there than here, I think you won't consider it a waste of time. In fact, I think it'll spur creativity and you'll think, oh, why don't I tell people to do that? And um, it's not at all asking you to be selfish to just do something for yourself to enjoy nature that other people can't enjoy. I, so I invite you, I, you were saying to my question, but it's really an invitation to think of something you can do to manifest those things on a daily or on a day-to-day -day basis. It could be just for one day, but you know, I don't want to say daily like forever, although you can. There are people who have done things like that on one of, at this request or invitation. And so I'm releasing you from trying to fix everything even though I think that it will lead there anyway. <laughs> but by letting go of that, I think it'll liberate you from a lot of constraints that are not constraints, but um, judgments. And I, I don't want to lead the witness here, but I predict it'll end up, it always ends up with people of kids that they end up spending more time with their kids in some way, even though it doesn't start thinking that way. They're, Anyway, does anything come to mind of something you've been thinking of doing and now's your chance or? I, I don't think so at this point, but it's certainly something that I will keep in mind for the future. Uh, uh, here I will. I, I, I always stop people. Uh, let's give it a shot <laughs> of going back and forth a few times because I've gotten pretty yeah, good at right. this. And I know when people say I'll get to it, then that means that they won't get to and it. And they never do. They believe that they will at the moment. Yeah. Uh, is there something that, is there anything that, that you've thought of? Or are there times when you really enjoyed it and you could do a little bit more of that or times when you felt like this is the opposite of, of how it used to be and that you'd like to something you'd like to restart or something you'd like to restore or something where you're like oh, why is it this way can it be like it used to be Some, any, any frustrations or or joys along this area you know i, I no, uh, there is not anything popping into my mind right now i when i think through this is that um is that I think that we've got ourselves in a very good situation, um, having moved here and what the life we've set up for ourselves, um, in particular, that um, because of the YouTube channel, I'm not going to go back to work. I was already taking a break as a house husband, and um, spending that time with my kids is like the most important thing to me. And, uh, and it's fantastic that I can do that and still be able to work on these things in the evening. Um, and to be 100% completely honest with you, um, I've never been happier in my life. So, so I have very, very few complaints about, about life in general, for me personally. Um, no, I really just no, I don't. It's a like now I'm <laughs> literally do not. I know. And I, and I know it's not the answer Amsterdam. you want, but it's true. Well, then I'm, I'm going to challenge you then this is something I rarely do because I believe that leadership is about going where people are. And, but I'm going to challenge you with what normally for most people is the hardest part. So a lot of people, they'll, they'll say like, they'll avoid meat for a month or something like that. They'll pick up litter for a month. They'll do something like that. And then I say to them, and then just to prepare you, I often say, there's two things that often challenge people in this. One of them is other people. So you go visit mom and she makes you that thing that she's like, Oh, I thought you loved this. And it's the thing you're trying to avoid. The other thing is travel. And when you're away from your home, 
some things that are under your control at home are harder to do when you're away from home. And so, yeah, so you, for sure. you know, the disposable stuff is all over the place and whatever. And if I'm not sharing something that is too secret, you mentioned before we started recording that you're going on vacation. Yeah. I wonder if you could, here's the challenge is normally what I say, sometimes maybe you just let go when you're away or sometimes you let go when your mom makes you the steak or whatever. Uh, might you try something when you're away from home that you might not otherwise do? And it's hard because it might be unpredictable. What's, what's that? Well, I mean, the one thing that, um, that I have been trying, my wife and I have been trying um, lately now that COVID is up, we like to travel. We love to travel. Um, and we've done a lot of travel and we want to introduce our kids to travel as well. Uh, but one of the things we're consciously starting to do is we're starting to travel um, without flying as much as humanly possible. Um, and that's not always possible and it is getting better. And that's actually one thing that, um, that I will be advocating for on the channel is a better rail throughout Europe. And there's various stumbling blocks that come in the way of that. But for example, uh, we're booking a trip to Switzerland and we are taking night trains there. And, uh, and of course it takes a lot longer than flying. Um, it can be more expensive too, which is just the world is so wrong sometimes, uh, but it's sometimes cheaper. But um, I think it's one of these things that, that, we're trying to do is to really get our children used to the idea of train travel and how it is fundamentally different than airline travel that airline travel people are very much like let's just get there as fast as possible and it's the whole experience sucks and then it's a pain and everything else um whereas train travel is something entirely different um uh, train travel is extremely relaxing it's extremely enjoyable it's don't worry about so much about the fact that it's going to be six hours and a flight is two it's not about that. It's about that whole experience while you're doing it. And that is one thing that we're trying to instill on in the kids too, is that, you know, you can have this nice, enjoyable train travel. You can sit and you can have a meal in the dining car and you can even um, break up the trip and see something else along the way. Um, you can, like the fact that this very much is the destination is the journey. And so this is one of the things that we're really trying to do more and more often is not just switch from uh, airline travel to train travel, but to fundamentally look at travel differently as it's not just about getting to your destination as quickly as possible. It's about the entire time you step out the door of your house and what that experience is like. Um, and in particular, the trip that we're doing to Switzerland next month is literally just train travel. We are going to Switzerland in order to ride trains, and then we are coming back. And I think uh, I think that's just a different way of looking at um, travel than most people have. And and I think that needs to be made easier and cheaper. I don't know if that answers your question, but that is what I thought about when you mentioned that. Um, boy, I wish it were easier to book trains, and I wish there were more of them. Well, you, I mean, you're thinking like your past improve its trains. And I was about to say, America, we could only improve. Like, there's no way we could make it worse. And I thought, no, we'll find a way. Uh, yeah, I, America frustrates me so much because people tell me all the time that uh, my ideas will never work because America is big. 
when I when I talked about the Wikipedia contrarians, uh, I, very, one of the most common Wikipedia contrarians I get is they'll cut and paste the number of square miles of the United States, and they'll cut and paste the number of square miles of the Netherlands, and they'll say, "See," and I'm like, <laughs> "That is irrelevant um, for so many reasons that I'm not even going to get into." But the fact is, most most people don't travel that far. They travel within their city, not across the country. But more importantly, the United States and Canada were built on trains. The in both countries were literally built on trains. They used to be built such that there were cities on the East Coast where they were founded, and then a train line was built west, and then along that train line there were towns that were built with train stations, and each one of those towns was a walkable town. And as those towns grew, they would get streetcar lines that would go into their streetcar suburbs. And those streetcar suburbs themselves were contained walkable areas. And if you wanted to go somewhere else, you took your local streetcar to your train station to the next city over. And when you got out of that city, you could walk at your destination to or you could take a streetcar there. That is the way the entire country was built. Every single major city in the United States, with the exception of Phoenix and Las Vegas, was built around a train station and a walkable neighborhood. And so to have people tell me that this is impossible today, I'm like, you have no idea. It's just, just it's a complete and utter lack of understanding of history. Yeah. Uh, even with our third world system here of trains, I still took the train to LA and back. And it was great. I mean, I would... Well, I was about to say I would do it again, but I'm going to bike the next time I go across the country <laughs> or maybe sail through the canal, but I'd definitely not drive. Well, uh, you know, we, we've looked many times at taking the train to Vancouver when we used to live in Toronto. Um, it's horrendously expensive, um, but also right when you book it, it has a big warning across it. It says, do not book any onboard, uh, on go, um, word tra onward transportation because they know they're going to be late. They know they're going to be days yeah, late. Japan, it's like, Japan, it's like seconds late and people are, what, what's going on? Yes. Here, it's if like it's 30 seconds late, they apologize, yes. Days, yeah. literally days late. And it doesn't have to be that way. It's entirely that way only because we've um, devalued uh, investment in train travel so much. We've just left it to private companies that are concerned with freight only. And the, and the passenger rail companies have to lease those tracks from the freight rail companies and fit in between arbitrary freight rail schedules, um, which is insane. I mean, you go to Switzerland, you don't even need to look at anything about the train except the time it arrives. If it's coming in at 13.01, you pick up the 13.01 train and you know that's the one you're, you're getting. It arrives at that time, that's the train. But, you know, in North America, <laughs> via rail, I believe they still have the situation where as long as it's like 20 minutes on either side, it's considered on time. So, you know, yeah, it's, so, it's frustrating. Yes, it's, it certainly is. Although a big part of leadership is personal leadership. And a big part of that is acknowledging how it makes me feel. I, I want to give up every day, every day. And I have to restore, why am I doing this? Because I, I see a better future. I see change but anyway i want to get back to the invitation i'm going to persist one more time and <laughs> as idyllic as your life is as perfect as it may be it may be perfecter or might it be i mean it, 
any chance of of something coming to mind that um I mean, now you're saying the train stuff. Is there something else you could do along those lines that is, you know, more free, more uh, awesome, more time with family that <laughs> you could manifest? I, I'm not. I'm not getting anything. To be honest, I'm really, really not. <laughs> I, I've not had the situation before where the person I'm talking to is like, I can't think of anything better. <laughs> no, I honestly, and it I literally, I know it's 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 a. Uh, <laughs> No, I mean, absolutely not. I really don't. Yeah, it's a really funny situation because most people, I feel like they're protecting themselves. And I feel like you're in a situation where you actually keep finding things like it's better than you thought. Yes, oh, absolutely. <laughs> it absolutely is. And I, it, I'm just going to go back to that video coming out next week about business parks. I had to go to a, um, I had to go to a meeting in a business park by the airport. I've been to in my time doing business travel and in my time working in business parks, I've been to crappy business parks by the airport dozens of times. And this was an unbelievable experience. And it sounds ridiculous because it's a business park by the airport. Mm -hmm. But um, I was dreading the trip. I was thinking, oh, geez, I know, I'm going to have to get a re rental car and go out to this crappy business park and let's just get this over with. And no. It was fantastic. It was that I was able to get there trivially by public transportation. I was able to walk um, to the office within a couple of minutes. It was even raining. It didn't matter. It was great. It was wonderful. Um, the whole experience was, was great beginning to end. And I actually got incredibly angry. Um, after my meeting, I walked around for an hour filming, and I actually literally got angry because I was like, some of the worst times of my life are when I worked in some shitty business park by the airport and, you know, taking some suburban bus that was stuck in traffic and 40 minutes behind schedule. And it was awful. And then when I would get there, people would say, why don't you just get a car? You know, it was just <sighs> it. And I, and I wasn't making enough money to afford a car. I wouldn't have been taking the bus in the first place. So I literally got angry because I was like, how many years of my life did I waste away in these miserable environments that made me miserable, made everybody else miserable. They were miserable to be in. They were miserable to look at. And um, I had no idea. I had no idea that there was an alternative to that. And nobody ever told me. And boy, did that piss me off. I, as I said, I literally got angry at it. Which is ridiculous because it's a business park by the airport. But anyway, this is what I'm trying to convey to people. Mm. The, there's this huge parallel in our lives. And uh, your videos get a lot more listeners or viewers than, than my podcast gets listeners. But this discovery over and over again of how it could be and how the bill of goods that I grew up believing just doesn't fit. And everything that they say, I mean, constantly, the number of things I get told of, like I say, I, I'll say it's been two and a half years since I've thrown out my garbage because it takes me that long to fill a load because I, get, I don't get packaged food. And they're like, oh, you're so privileged. You can go to the farmer's market, but not other people can't do that. <laughs> like, I didn't know that I could before either. And right, they have all these reasons why they're either they're special 
and therefore they can't, or I'm special and therefore I could. Yeah. And the number of people who tell me about single moms in food deserts with three kids and three jobs who are not themselves single mothers, mothers in three in, in food deserts with three kids and three jobs and yeah. are just saying, well, if, if she needs to take them to McDonald's, which is like bizarro thinking, but that's what they think, then not realizing McDonald's isn't the cure or res- it's, the, <laughs> it's the cause of the impoverishment. It's yeah. the cause of not having any time. Yeah. Not the, and every time, if you think that because she has to, which she doesn't, but let's say she does. If you think that because she has to, then that, that makes it okay for you to do it. Uh-uh, because every dollar you spend at McDonald's gives them the ammunition to go in and, and extract more wealth from those neighborhoods because, mm. because right next to it, it's pretty clear when you see a payday loan store or you see a, you know, the cheap junk store that thing breaks, like that is, they're extracting wealth. Mm. And, and everyone's like, how do we? Okay, so you see, I get angry too. Yeah, well, you know, and, and I hear a literally exactly the same thing with respect to walkable cities um, because people immediately assume that all cars are going to be removed off the face of the earth or we're just car haters or something. And it's just absolute nonsense, but they're not thinking properly. But there is a huge, or a huge number of people that seem to think that there's this argument. I've mentioned this before. They seem to think that if they can think of a single hypothetical reason why a car is necessary, then therefore everybody must drive everywhere all the time. Yeah. It's And that is insane. But you would not believe the number of people. And it is literally what you just described. It is the same line of thinking. There are benefits to motor vehicles, and we do not get rid of them here. We use them for what they're useful for. But just because you can think of a single hypothetical reason why a motor vehicle is required does not mean we should pave the earth for parking lots so that everybody drives everywhere. Yeah, it's, I'm, uh, I propose, if you're game, would you come back for a second episode and continue this conversation? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I'm happy to talk. I like doing podcasts. Okay, then that saves me of like having to wrap this up and tie it up with the phone <laughs> because that's not going to be possible. Yeah. Uh, I invite you back a second time and, and, uh, but to wrap this up, is there anything I didn't think to ask that, to, or anything you want to close this one with? Well, um, I, I'm glad that we could talk about something else because too many of the podcasts and interviews I do end up focusing on like, how did you get to the Netherlands? And, uh, you know, how did you start the YouTube channel? And I have no interest in talking about any of that stuff anymore. I'm interested in talking about issues and experiences and i think that we've done a better job of that than other interviews that i've had so i guess all i would leave on is um an ad for my myself the channel's called uh, not just bikes you can find it by searching on any platform um, but it's primarily on youtube and check it out you know even if you are a car lover i have lots of people in my audience who love cars, who love driving, and yet they still don't want to live somewhere car dependent. This is not about cars. This is not about bicycles. This is about ending car dependency. Um, I think it sh- if anybody lives in a city, they should never be dependent on a car to feed themselves, to get to work, to go to school. And that's what this is all about. Jason Slaughter, thank you very much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, 
There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.